Merry Christmas! Welcome to the sermon podcast from Mount Hope Belmont, where each week you will hear a message designed to help you learn more about God, grow in your love for God and others, so you can go and live your life driven by faith. In this special Christmas series, we are going to find out the reason we celebrate Christmas. What's so great about celebrating the birth of Jesus? What sort of questions come up in your mind? Like, who is Jesus? Why Bethlehem? What do these Christmas carols all mean? Join us for the next few weeks as we celebrate and remember why Jesus was born 2,000 years ago and how it is still a joyful news to us as followers of Jesus. And I pray that after listening to this message, may you be blessed as we hear about the birth of Jesus Christ. I'm going to invite you, if you would, to go ahead and open up your Bible. And if you uh, don't have one with you, there's some ones in the chairs right in front of you. You can grab one of those. You can open up the app on your phone or however it is that you read the Bible. We are going to be in Matthew chapter 2 together. And if you're using one of these Black Pew Bibles, uh, or chair Bibles, I should say, we're going to be on page 807. It's the first page in the New Testament if you're looking at your table of contents and trying to figure out exactly where you want to go there. Matthew chapter 2. I, I appreciate Bill's announcement earlier. That is every year the most uncomfortable announcement for me to sit through. Uh, it's not my favorite announcement of the year. But, you know, it, it, things when we talk about everything that God's doing among us, it is pretty incredible to think about what God's done in a short amount of time. Uh, you know, you may get tired of me sharing the story, but I, I don't get tired of sharing what God has done here in this place, you know, in this building for many years. Uh, some of you were at our Thanksgiving Eve service, and one of the people that shared at our Thanksgiving Eve service, his name's Dennis Levitt. He and his family have attended the Burlington campus of Mount Hope for about 30 years. They were married in this building, him and his wife Val, uh, longer than 30 years ago. And he talked about that at our Thanksgiving Eve service, if you, were, if you were there. And it's amazing to see what God has done over the years, because for many years, a small group of very faithful people met and gathered in this building for worship. And some of them are still in the room here this morning. And then for two years, there were no worship gatherings in this building. From 2013 to 2015, there's no worship gatherings in this building other than those of us who are doing construction and renovation coming together to pray. And then in September 2015, we open. And now, you know, between our two services uh, over this fall, we've had somewhere between 130 and 150 people gathering regularly uh, in worship on Sunday mornings. It's an amazing thing. I don't know if you know this. You probably know this because you live here. Uh, the Boston area is not the place that people go to start churches. You know, you know about this? When they do the rankings every year of, of the least biblically-minded cities, Boston's always in the top three, and usually it's number two right after the Albany, New York area. So at least we're not the worst, right? At least we have Albany, New York to be the worst when it comes to biblically-minded areas. But we're always top three. Some of the San Francisco and Boston seem to switch. But, but so, this is, so the fact that God has brought together this group of people to come and worship each week is an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing. And it has so much to do with you and your willingness to be used by God. There's so many of you that are in this room that are volunteering in different ministries or leading different ministries. And I am so thankful for people like Carmelina and like Justin and like Ting and Melissa and the people that are leading our ministries and those of you who are serving alongside of them. That is an amazing thing that God is doing among us. So when we talk about all God is doing, we need to celebrate all of that together. I'm glad to be a part of it. 
when people, sometimes people will ask me a question, and the question goes something like this. So tell me, where did you go to school? Because they find out that I'm not originally from the Boston area, and some of you aren't originally from the Boston area. And they'll say to me, uh, something like, where did, where did you go to school? And I will answer, I went to school uh, in Orange City, Iowa, I'll say at Northwestern College. And they usually say back to me something like this, oh, Northwestern, that's a really good school. Have to say back to them, let's dial it back a minute, because I think you heard me say that I went to Northwestern University, which is an amazing school outside of Chicago, part of the Big Ten. You have to be incredibly smart to get into Northwestern University. I said I went to Northwestern College in Orange City, Iowa, a very small liberal arts school in rural Iowa that if you promise to pay your bill, they will let you in. Now, I like to think of it as the Harvard of Sioux County, Iowa, but, but it doesn't quite have the prestige as Northwestern University. And in that small town of Orange City, Iowa, there wasn't much. In fact, uh, one time I took my wife, Lori, who grew up in Burlington and is from the Boston area, to a wedding in Orange City, Iowa. And there were two things she noticed immediately. One was the smell of uh, the amount of pigs that exist in that part of Iowa, but we just say it's the smell of money. And so uh, and then the other thing that she noticed was as we were driving up to the town, I don't know if you've ever driven cross country. Some of you have told me uh, how you've driven through these states where I grew up and you can't believe how flat it is and how far you can see. And as we were driving up to this town where I went to college and Lori was in the car next to me, we're probably about five miles out, and you could see all the way to the town, all five miles, flat and straight the road was. And you could see the, where the town began, and you could see very clearly where the town ended. It was farms, and then the town begins, and the town ends. And as we're driving up the road, Lori said to me, your college fits in there? And I said, oh yeah, don't worry. As we get closer, you'll see. It fits in there just fine. Now, the town where I went to school, uh, I really enjoyed going to school there. It, there wasn't much in the town, but just down the road was a larger town called Lamar's, Iowa. And now, I know you've all heard about Lamar's, Iowa, you know everything about it, but let me just tell you a little bit about it. Lamar's is a thriving metropolis, uh, as you can see, which includes many businesses. Uh, here's the downtown area of Lamar's, just so you can see just how big it is and just how thriving it is. It has many things, including the Pizza Ranch, which is the only place uh, where I know regularly on the buffet you can get pizza and roasted chicken, and fried potato wedges, and that's about it. That's great Midwestern cuisine right there. And so this is Lamar's, Iowa, and it, Lamar's, Iowa is also the home of Blue Bunny ice cream. Maybe you've had Blue Bunny ice cream. So maybe if you go to the freezer section of your grocery store after church today, and you look in the freezer section, you'll find Blue Bunny products. They're all made there in Lamar's, Iowa. Now, something happened. Something happened in Lamar's, Iowa when I was going to school that divided the town. And let me tell you, it's the same thing that divides our towns in and around the city of Boston as well. In fact, there was a big announcement when I was in my senior year of school, and the town divided around it, and the same thing happens here. And the big announcement was this. I remember they had the headlines in the papers, uh, in the, all the small town papers, and that was Super Walmart announced that they were going to open up in Lamar's, Iowa. So this quaint little town with nothing much more than the Blue Bunny ice cream factory, Super Walmart, 
was coming to town. And you know why it divided the town, right? You know what happens in these situations. This is, I mean, Amazon existed back in these days, but they only sold books. And so people were still buying their stuff in the stores. And this is what happens in the town. Some people hear that news and they anticipate it with great excitement. This is good news. And you know why it's good news. One, prices are going to go down. Things are going to be cheaper. Two, when you live in that part of the, of the country, I can tell you, in pre-Amazon days, you're driving a long way to get some very basic things. And so now our drive time was cut significantly. In fact, we used to have to drive an hour to Sioux City, Iowa. Now we only had to drive about 15 minutes to Lamar's, Iowa to go to Super Walmart. And the other thing that happens is jobs come. There are a lot more jobs when something like that moves into a small town. But not everyone has that reaction, right? In fact, to some people, the idea of a place like Super Walmart, one of those big box stores moving into town, is not good news at all. It is very threatening news. And we see it in our towns too. Have you ever been driving through a town in and around the city of Boston, and all of a sudden you start to notice the the signs that are in everybody's yards? And they say something like this, vote to keep fill in the big box store, out of fill in the town. You've seen this before, haven't you? Just a couple years ago, it was Home Depot and Bill Ricca. You've seen these before. Keep, vote to keep this big box store out of our town. Because for some people, the idea of a store like that moving into town is greatly anticipated. More jobs, lower prices, easier to get things. But for other people, it is threatening news. And who is it threatening to? It is threatening to the people who are already established in their businesses, isn't it? If you were the mechanic in Lamar's, Iowa, and Super Walmart with a full garage was moving into town, what did you know? You knew that your garage was probably done. It might take a year. It might take two years. All your friends and neighbors said to you, you know, I will never go to the Super Walmart. I'll only come to you. And then Walmart moves into town. It's way more convenient. It's easier to access things. It's cheaper. And by year three, everybody's left and gone to the big store. And it happens in our towns as well. One of the things I actually like about living in New England is it feels to me like the last place where we're able to keep these big box stores at least a little bit at bay and still have some local business happening. I think that's good. But there's all sorts of things in our world, isn't it? When the news breaks, to some of us it's really good news and to other people it's not good news at all. And it's not just when a big box store moves into town. Sometimes it's when someone invites you to their party And they think it's really good news that they're having a party and you get the invitation. And to you, you're saying to yourself, we are so busy this Christmas season and I'm not sure we're going to be able to make it. And to be quite honest, if I was going to go to someone's party, it probably wouldn't be your party. And even though it's great news to the person that's asking you, it is not great news to those of us receiving it. You get the wedding invitation in the mail and, and they think it's great news. To some people, it's great news, but you open it up and it's the person that you dated that you hope you were going to get back together with. And it is not good news to you, is it? There's all sorts of things. There's all sorts of things that are good news to some people and are not good news to other people. You know, when Jesus was born on this earth, it was announced, it was announced that night as very good news. In fact, maybe you remember this story. Maybe you remember it because you read it in Luke chapter 2, or maybe you remember it because Linus says it every year on the Charlie Brown Christmas special. But either way, this is how the birth of Jesus was announced. There were shepherds that were in a field keeping watch over their flocks at night. And angels appeared and told them 
that Jesus had been born. And the angel said it this way. He said, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The birth of Jesus in that moment is announced as good news. But just like the big box store moving into town and just like opening up that announcement, it was good news to some people, but it was not good news to everybody. And in fact, even in that day and time, when it was announced, some people took it as great news. Those shepherds took it as great news. And they ran and they went and saw the baby, but not everyone received it that way, even in that moment. And isn't it true today that some of us, especially those of us who call ourselves Christians and followers of Jesus, when we think about the baby born in the manger, it remains good news. This is a good thing of great joy. But isn't it true even today that to some people in our world, it's not good news. It's threatening news. In fact, we live in a time and in a culture, well, because it's threatening news, our world is doing quite a bit to make sure that it's not talked about. Why is that? I mean, it's a, a baby in a manger. Why does it elicit this sort of response? Why for some is it such good, life-changing news, and for others, it's such threatening news? And in fact, for most people who understand the story and have some grasp of the story, there really isn't a middle ground here. If you really understand who Jesus is and why this baby was born, it's tough to have a middle ground here. You either think this is really good news or this is really bad news that no one should hear about. And even at the moment that Jesus was born, people began to react this way. And this morning, we're going to look at a story in which we see some people react as if this is great news, and other people react as if this is very threatening news. And we're going to talk together for ourselves and in our own lives, where is the birth of Jesus Christ good news, and where is it actually quite threatening news? The story that we're going to talk about happens in Matthew chapter 2. And it's a story that my guess is even if you're not very familiar with church, you're not in church every single week, you know something of this story. You probably know it as the story of the three wise men. Let me just get it out there while we get started. Uh, it probably wasn't three. I hate to do that to you. Probably was not three wise men. There are three gifts. There are three gifts. But the, nowhere in the text does it say that there were three wise men. That is from the song. I hate to do that to you. It's Christmas. I know you love, we love our traditions. But there are probably more than three camels, probably more than three wise men, but three gifts. And here's their story. Here's what it happens. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Matthew writes, of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men, or magi is the Greek word there. You may be familiar with that word. Came from the east, from the east, came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod, the king, heard this, look at his response. When Herod, the king, heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Why, why is that? 
these magi, these wise men, we'll talk about them in a moment, they come from the east, they travel a long way, and they come to see Herod, who is the king over that region, and they say, good news, a baby, an important child has been born in your kingdom. We have come, we've uprooted everything, we've traveled a long way, we have come to worship him. And Herod, who is just down the road in Jerusalem, just down the road from Bethlehem, quite literally, just down the road from Bethlehem in Jerusalem, Rather than wanting to join and to worship with them, he is threatened. In fact, the text says that his heart is troubled. Why is that? Why the different response? We have to understand a little bit of the world in which these folks are living. For the Jewish people who lived in that region, they had been waiting for a long time for a promised Savior. In fact, if we were to go backwards in the book, you're on the first page of the New Testament. If we were to start going backwards through the pages of the Old Testament, you know what we would find? We would find that for generation after generation after generation, the Jewish people had been awaiting a Messiah or a Savior that was to come and to liberate them. And in their minds, it wasn't just from their sins. In their minds, it was a liberation from the fact that for as far back as anyone could remember, they had been ruled over by other nations and other people. When Jesus comes into the world, the Roman Empire is in control. You remember that from your history classes. The Roman Empire pretty much controls everything in that part of the world at that time. But before the Romans, it was people like the Assyrians and the Persians and the Babylonians. And for generation after generation, the, they're, they're, in hundreds of years... The Jewish people were controlled by outsiders. They were in exile, they were enslaved, and they were not the ones in charge. And they used to get together, and they would worship together their God. They would worship Yahweh. And they would come together, and they would say, we are in this place, we are in this situation. And they would point to the prophecies that are all through this book, but they would say, one day, one day a Savior is coming. And in fact, in 700 BC, hundreds of years before Jesus was born, it was written in the book of Micah that he would be born in Bethlehem, that one day a Savior is coming and he's going to be born in Bethlehem and he is going to bring liberation and new life into all of these dark spaces. And so there was this great anticipation. And as Rome was in charge, people were still waiting for this Messiah to be born. And these magi, They weren't necessarily followers of Yahweh, but they would have come from regions. They would have come from regions in which the Jewish tradition and Jewish customs were practiced. The best way I think I could describe the wise men or the magi is that they were very spiritually open people. Do you meet people like that? They don't necessarily have one single faith or one single belief, but they are very open spiritually. That's how the Magi operated. The Magi, the wise men, they were, they were people that informed rulers and kings. They were people that were kept within the king's court to help make decisions and give counsel and wisdom. And they would use all sorts of things to come to their decisions. They would use things like sorcery. They would try to read uh, flames and fire. They would use astrology. But they were also very familiar with the Jewish text. And so we don't have much time to go into it this morning, but in a pretty miraculous way, God gets a hold of their attention. They don't necessarily follow the one true God of the Bible. They're spiritually open people. And God says, I know how to get their attention. 
He puts a star in the sky. And as they're studying and as they're doing their astrology, they notice something different. And it is a symbol to them that a king has been born in Bethlehem. And so being familiar with all of these spiritual things, being familiar with the Jewish text, they are excited because they know the Jewish people have been waiting for this Savior who is going to come outside of Bethlehem. And now they have this sign in the sky that a Savior has been born, that a king has been born in Bethlehem. So they pack everything up. And they load up their camels, just like in your nativity scene, and they start walking all the way to Jerusalem. This is probably a couple of years after Jesus is born. So when you set up your nativity scene, the wise men and their camels, they should be on the other side of the room, just just so you know. This is a couple years after the fact. And they show up and they say to Herod, we have good news. You know how for hundreds of years people have been waiting and anticipating that a king of the Jews would be born out of Bethlehem? We have seen a sign that it has happened, and we have traveled and come, and we have come here to worship him. And for those of us who are look at our lives, and we look at ourselves and we say, despite my best efforts, Despite everything I've tried to do, despite how much I've tried to do good in this world, I have this overwhelming sense that I can't live up to my own standard or other people's standards, much less God's standards. And I can't build something that lasts anything beyond myself. I am in need of a Savior. For those of us who who look at ourselves in that way and see ourselves in that way, that we can't live up to our own standard or God's standard and that we are in need of a Savior, the birth of Jesus Christ, King of the Jews in Bethlehem, born as Savior, fulfilling all of these Old Testament prophecies is great news. And when that is good news, that a Savior has been born, and if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you know exactly what I'm talking about. That you have been convicted of your sin, that you have said, I am not who I should be or who God wants me to be, but you understand that rather than, than, than eternal punishment, God offers you eternal life and relationship with him through his son, Jesus Christ. The birth of this child is great news because you have a Savior who saves you for eternity, who restores relationship with God, who infuses life with meaning and purpose and significance. And we have no problem then if we see Jesus like that, of doing exactly what the wise men did. When they felt like a savior had been born in Bethlehem, they left everything they had. They brought gifts and they laid them at Jesus' feet. You know that story. That part you have right, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And then the text says they bow down and worship him. You know what they're really doing there when they come and they give and they bow? They're adoring. We've sung that word a number of times this morning. Adoration, adore. When we believe something is more significant than us, we come and we, we leave where we are and we go to where that thing is. We lay everything that we have down at its feet and we bow and we worship, we adore. And that is the proper response. That's why you're here this morning. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that's why you're here this morning. Some of you are here because someone else who uh, drug you here or because it's Christmas time and you felt like you should be in church. But for those of you who call yourself followers of Jesus Christ, the reason we do this isn't because we have nothing else to do. 
we could have very productive Sunday mornings at home, couldn't we? We could do what everyone else around us does on Sunday mornings. We could shovel the driveway. We could clean up the house. We could get ready for the week ahead. We could get lunch together. We could do all sorts of stuff with our Sunday mornings, which the vast majority of people do around us. But because we are convinced that this baby that was born in the manger is the long-awaited king and savior, we do what is appropriate. This is the same thing the Magi did. We leave where we are. We bring what we have. And we bow down together and we worship. That's why we gather on Sunday mornings. Is to worship and adore him together. But not everyone has this response. See, Herod, he's troubled. And all of Jerusalem with him. So why is it the the magi are prone to adoration, and Herod is troubled. Why is it in our world some of us are so excited to celebrate the birth of Jesus, but if you walked into the public schools, here in this town, surrounding towns, and if your town isn't there yet, it's headed in that direction, I promise, Why is it we can't walk in and say something as simple as, on December 25th, Christians celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ as their Messiah and their Savior? Can't even say it factually, much less trying to convince someone it's true. Why not? Because to some people, this is threatening news. Still today. And so our world is doing what it can to push it to the margins and push it to the edges and get it out of any space where it might be heard. But why? It's a baby in a manger. Why can't we say what it is, what this celebration is? What's the danger? The danger today is the same danger that Herod had 2,000 years ago. Herod grew up under the Roman Empire, and he was a star. You know how you have those, those young kids? They grow up and they're teenagers, and they're just better than everybody at certain things. Uh, you know, I wish I had been one of those, but you know who I'm talking about. You go to play on the football team, and it's eighth grade, and somehow some people are already shaving, and they're huge, and they're just better than everybody already. And, and some people are just more gifted than other people with music or academically. And, and Herod, as a young man, was a warrior, and he was gifted. Not just at being a warrior, but leading other people. And so he grew up in this region, and every so often there would be uprising against the Roman Empire. And when there were uprisings in Galilee, he would squash them out. And he did it so effectively as a young man that people hundreds of miles away in Rome began to take notice. And you can imagine how long it took for that word to travel. They weren't tweeting about it or posting it online. Uh, But the word was getting back to Rome. This guy, Herod, he is great at keeping people in line and not letting them rebel against the Roman Empire. And so when the time was right, they promoted Herod to be in charge of that entire region, to be king over Jerusalem. And do you know what they called him? As king of Jerusalem, king of the city that was at the seat of the Jewish faith and tradition, he was... Herod, king of the Jews. And he had fought to keep that title. 
He was on top, and plenty of people wanted to knock him off. And Herod didn't mess around. In fact, 30 years before Jesus' birth, there was a group that came, and they led an effective rebellion. In fact, they knocked Herod off of his throne, and they, they established a person that was king over Jerusalem, a Jewish person that was king over Jerusalem. If you maybe remember back to a college history class, this is the Hasmonean family. It was an important priestly Jewish family that was able to come up and organize and knock Herod off his throne. Well, Herod hightailed it to Rome, and he went to, to the head of the Roman Empire and it, whoever he had to see, and he said, listen, I need resources because the Hasmoneans took over, and I need to get it back. Rome gave him everything he needed, and he marched back in Jerusalem with all sorts of firepower, and he took his throne back. And he had a wife who was from the Hasmonean family. And he couldn't quite be sure that she was on his side anymore. So he executed her and her two children. And at one point, he thought his son, his oldest son, was rising up against him. So he had him executed as well. And Herod's reign throughout those years was anyone who was against him was going to lose their life. And so the Magi, they come with this good news. Herod. We have seen a sign. You know this great anticipation? We have seen this sign, and a, the king of the Jews has been born in Bethlehem. And Herod said, who? Who has been born in Bethlehem? And they said, the king of the Jews. And in Herod's mind, you can see the wheels start to rotate. He's king of the Jews. He's king. And there is no way that some child in Bethlehem is going to come and is going to take over his throne. And so he begins to hear, these people from the east think that this baby is king of the Jews. I'm king of the Jews. And just like it did with his, with his wife and just like it did with his older son, he begins to say to himself, I have to get rid of this. And Herod tries to find out exactly where Jesus is so he can kill him. But that doesn't work. So he does something incredibly awful. If you look in verse 16 of this chapter, this is what he does. Then Herod, when he saw he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. This is why we think it's about two years from Jesus' birth until the wise men show up. Because when Herod goes and he kills all these boys, he kills every child, male child in Bethlehem and the region, two years old or younger. Because he's king. And there is no way this child is going to knock him off the throne. And I wonder, are there places in your life and my life where we're actually much more like Herod than we are the Magi? Where we like to think and say that, that Jesus is the Savior, that he is the long-awaited Messiah, he is my Savior, and we, we say the proper response is adoration. We're going to go, and we're going to give our gifts, and we're going to worship him. But there are these places in our lives where we look at that baby in the manger, and then we look at ourselves and our own lives that we've built in our own little kingdoms, and we say, not maybe out loud, but we say it somewhere in the back of our heads, just so you know, 
In this area of my life, I'm king, not you. If we look at ourselves and we see ourselves as people in need of a savior, then the birth of Jesus Christ is great news. But if we look at ourselves and we see ourselves as king building our own kingdoms, the birth of a king in that manger is a threat. And we live in a world that is threatened by that baby in the manger because this is about our kings, our kingdoms, and the things that we can build and the, and the things that we can do under our own, by ourselves with our own knowledge and our own authority and our own power of reasoning, the things that we can build and put together. This whole world that we live in, this whole culture that we're in is all about doing the things that we can do under our own power and our own strength. When Jesus comes, he says very clearly, that he came to establish a kingdom. This is not something that we put on him. This is not something that other people put on. Jesus, on him, Jesus himself said, I came to establish a kingdom. In fact, he says it right before he goes to the cross. The Roman officials are talking to him, specifically a man named Pilate, 33 years after his birth, right before he's about to go to the cross. And they ask him very directly, are you the king of the Jews? We know that Magi thought so about three decades ago, and the shepherds said, the angels said, are you king of the Jews? And look what happens. Look at this interaction. So Pilate, this is the Roman official, he entered his headquarters. Again, Jesus is right about to go to the cross and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Is this true? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? And Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answers this. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom, my kingdom is not of this world. And if you or I are under the impression that the greatest kingdoms are of this world, then a baby who is born to build a kingdom that is not of this world is a great threat to us. And I wonder, where is it in your life and my life that we look at Jesus and the kingdom that he's building and we say, okay, Jesus, in this area, I'm king. I'm in charge. You know, for some of us, it's the way we handle our relationships. God says to do things a certain way, and we look at it, we say, you know what? I, I'm king here. Our culture's king here. Our culture knows more about this than you do, God. So, you know, we're king here, and you're a threat, and we try to keep God, Jesus at a distance. For some of us, it's the way we handle our business or the way we handle our finances, the way we handle our families, the way we handle our careers, all of these things where we, we start to think that it really is about this world, that it is about building great kingdoms in this world, and we start to look at the things we're building and we're doing and all the things we're able to do on our own strength and our own initiative and our own authority, and when we see Jesus say something different and he says, I'm the king, I'm in charge, we start to say, wait a second. No, I'm king, and I'm in charge. And the question is, do we see Jesus as someone who came to serve us as we sit on our thrones, 
Or do we see Jesus as someone who came for us to serve as he sits on his throne? If we think that Jesus is someone who came to serve us as we sit on our thrones, then you're going to do everything you can to get rid of him because he is a threat. And some of us, we embrace him in some other areas of our lives, but we ignore him in others because he's a threat. We want to be on the throne. But the reality of the situation is this. Our kingdoms, no matter how hard we try, are very small and don't last very long. No one serves Herod the Great today. They haven't in 2,000 years. We study him as a historical figure. He's an interesting character. If it weren't for the Christmas story, we may have forgotten about him altogether. No one serves Herod anymore. He was a great king. And everyone in our world who's building their own little kingdom, that kingdom is going to end, and it's going to feel like it ended far too soon. But Jesus builds a kingdom that's not of this world. It's a kingdom that lasts for all eternity. It's a kingdom that's greater than anything we could come up with on our own. And in spite of the fact that Jesus lived the same time period as Herod, over a billion people living on the earth right now, and billions of people in the years since Jesus was on this earth continue to serve and to live in his kingdom. Because to us, Jesus, this baby, isn't a threat to our kingdom. We recognize that we are in deep need of a savior, that life here is short, but that we are designed to live forever, that our relationship with God is broken and it needs to be healed. And so for us, we are more than happy to get off the throne and to let Jesus take the throne. And rather than say, you stay there, and and you serve me, we say, you come here and I'll serve you. That is not an easy thing to do. It requires us to admit that he's king and we're not. But you know, we get used to living very troubled lives. We sit on that throne and trouble comes and we're uncertain about things and we don't know how we're going to hang on to everything. And rather than let Jesus take that position and serve him and find certainty in him, we, like Herod, dig our heels in and continue to live in the trouble. This morning is an invitation to take those places in your life and allow Jesus to take that spot And rather than hold him at bay to do exactly what the wise men did and to come and adore him. I'm going to invite our our music team to come forward as we prepare to close this morning. And as they do, invite you to think about one last thing with me. You know, in our lives, many of us, we operate as microscopes when we should operate as telescopes. I'll tell you what I mean by that. Many of us in our lives, we operate like microscopes when we should operate like telescopes. See, microscopes and telescopes, they both magnify things, but often they're used very differently as instruments. And I know I'm in dangerous territory. We've got a lot of scientists in the room here that use microscopes, so I'm not going to get too detailed here, all right? I know my lanes. Microscopes, 
they take things that are very small and make them appear bigger than they really are. Microscopes see things that are very small, that are hard to see, and they make them bigger than they really are. They appear larger. They appear bigger than they really are. Telescopes, and especially I'm thinking about how they're used as we stare at the sky and stare into our universe. Telescope takes things that are actually quite large but are difficult to see and brings them into proper perspective. Whereas a microscope takes something small and makes it appear big, Telescopes help us see things that are big but far away for what they really are. And a lot of us, we live our lives and we work like microscopes. We take our little tiny kingdoms and our little tiny things that we are building and we blow them up out of proportion and make them much bigger than they really are. And we think about our kingdoms and the things that we're holding on to and the things that we're building and we trumpet those things. And if you look at our world and you listen to anyone who's talking on television, they're going to trumpet all the things we're building and all the things we're doing and all the innovations we're making. And we make them in light of eternity far larger than they really are. But as telescopes, we take God, who is far bigger than we could even comprehend. And as we worship him and adore him and magnify him, he, we begin to understand and recognize his greatness and his awesome nature and his power more than ever before. And as we do that, as we come to understand just how big he is and how loving he is and how merciful he is and how great he is, we begin to take ourselves off the throne and put him on it. And as we close this morning, we have this opportunity together to worship and adore our God. So I'm going to invite you, if you would, to stand to your feet. And I'm going to say a prayer, and then we are going to worship together. God, I confess to you this morning. I confess to you this morning that there are areas in my life where I am much more like Herod than I am the wise men. That I hear about the baby who has been born to be king, and I dig my heels in, and I say in this area of my life, in this thing, this is my thing and my deal. And in those places, I can become very troubled and anxious and overwhelmed. God, I pray you forgive me for those things, and I pray that you would come and that you would take your proper place on the throne. And God, I will worship and I will serve you. And God, for this congregation, there are plenty of places in our lives where we stay on the throne and keep you off of it, God, I pray that you would take control of every piece of our lives. And Lord, for the person who is here this morning, who has never before surrendered control of their life to you, God, I pray that this would be the day that they would make that decision to get off the throne and to put you on it to recognize that you're king and they aren't, to recognize that you are a savior and they are someone who is in need of saving. Lord, we worship you and adore you. You are the only one who is worthy. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. Let's worship our God together. Hey, thanks again for listening to the podcast from Mount Hope's Belmont location. At Mount Hope, we gather in Belmont every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 1045 a.m. and in Burlington at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. Each week that we gather, we do so to learn more about God, grow in our love of Him and others, and then we go to live lives driven by faith. If you live in the Burlington or Belmont, Massachusetts areas, we'd love for you to join us on a Sunday. You can learn more about us by visiting our website at mounthope.org, M-O-U-N-T-H-O-P-E dot O-R-G, or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at mthopebelmont. Thanks again for joining us, and we look forward to having you listen again next week.